Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hostrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors, and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. Today I'm talking to TV, film and media composer and solo artist Danny Mulhern. So before I dive in and give you an overview of what you can expect from my chat with Danny Mulhern, I need to make an apology. All the music featured in the podcast is my own, but the theme tune which you've just heard is courtesy of the music publisher AudioSocket ASX, who um, have very kindly given me permission to use it as this sort of theme tune for the show. Um, I can't quite believe I've managed to get to episode seven without crediting them. So uh, thank you, AudioSocket ASX. Um, and that particular track is called Dark Arts off the album of the same name. Going forward, I will ensure that any publisher who's kind enough to let me use um, music on the show will, of course, get full credit. So, Danny Mulhern. So Danny Mulhern is a pretty philosophical cat, and as such, I was ready to go pretty deep with him, uh, and we do. We talk about his use of improvisation and flow state as a creative tool for making music. Um, We touch on flow state at several points throughout the interview, and for anyone who isn't familiar with flow state, it can be described as the mental state in which a person performing some activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energised focus. Energised focus. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Um, But it's, yeah, the idea that we're kind of in the zone, we're immersed in something to a point where everything outside of that kind of ceases to uh, exist. Um, Powerful tool. We also talk about accessing uh, the subconscious. I sounded very northern when I said that. Accessing the subconscious. Um, We also look at overcoming procrastination. Um, or what Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art refers to as resistance. Now, if you haven't read The War of Art, um, I highly recommend it. Um, It's a great book for anyone who does anything remotely creative. But Stephen Pressfield talks about resistance, which is that thing that stops you being creative. We touch on imposter syndrome, which if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that many creatives uh, suffer from. It seems definitely a recurring theme. And Danny very kindly shares about a time in his life where he very much fell out of love with music. He felt like he was doing it for the wrong reasons. But that love was rekindled um, through collaboration with other musicians and actually through human connection, um, which is a kind of really inspiring story. We talk about John Viveki, uh, the cognitive psychologist and the meaning crisis. Yep, told you we go deep. Um, but it's also a project that Danny's actually involved with at the moment. Um, in terms of going under the skin, we talk about a film that he scored, uh, What They Had, um, starring Hilary Swank and Michael Shannon. And Danny essentially scored that film in the best part of three weeks, which was a, a phenomenal feat. We also get a taste um, for Danny's musical influences, um, which include the likes of Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles and Ian McGilchrist. As ever, I link to all the people and the music that we talk about in the podcast. You can find that in the show notes of your preferred podcast platform, uh, or you can pop on over to my website, larpmusic.com, click on podcasts, and you'll find all the links there. And a little ask from me, if you enjoy the podcast and are happy to do so, I would be hugely grateful if you could pop on over to Apple Podcasts and give it a rating and a review. It just helps with the algorithm and it tells the artificial intelligence, which will soon be running the world, that this podcast is worth listening to. Thanks a lot. Let's chat to Danny. Danny Mulhern is a composer, multi-instrumentalist and producer who, in addition to writing for TV and film, releases his own unique brand of instrumental music. Much of his recent work has been with the London Contemporary Orchestra on records and film scores, including the critically acclaimed What They Had, starring Hilary Swank, Michael Shannon and Robert Forster. Other film and TV scores include long-running BBC forensic crime drama Silent Witness, BBC wildlife documentary The Natural World and entertainment shows with the likes of Darren Brown, Matt Lucas and Simon Pegg. 
Danny's own music is probably best described as contemporary classical with an ambient electronic crossover. To my mind, Danny's music is wonderfully textural and he often plays with polyrhythms as he explores philosophical ideas around improvisation, intuition and collective intelligence. Look out for his forthcoming album, Singing Through Others, which is inspired primarily by conversations around sense-making and the meaning crisis. Danny Mulhern, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jim. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you've worked on a show um, with Simon Pegg's been in, because I often think that you look a bit like Simon Pegg. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that, actually. I think it's even, I think even Marielle, my partner, said that when we first yeah. got together. I didn't take it as a compliment, but he's got a lot of charisma. But I- absolutely, yeah. No, I think you very much so. Um, but you know, you, we we never see you in the same room, so that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not going. I'm not. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> um, so, first question is rewind to a young Danny Mulhern back in the day, sort of pre ten. Um, if someone had asked you what you would like to be when you grow up, what would have been your response? Oh Christ! Do I admit it? That's the question. The, uh, okay, yes. the truth. <laughs> the truthful answer actually is, is priest, but it's not for any kind of um, deep existential reasons. It's like, well, I was sort of brought up Catholic, and and I was I did take it quite seriously actually. But um, there was this time, kind of when we were kids, everyone was watching. This is going to show my age. Um, everyone was watching Dallas and stuff, and there were these sort of eighties miniseries, and there was this one called The Thornbirds with Richard Chamberlain. And he was a sort of priest who had this love affair with this really lovely girl. And uh, yeah, and, but he was also a successful priest. He became a cardinal and all this. And I thought, God, he's having his cake and eating it. Maybe I can. <laughs> he's a philandering priest. I want to be one of those. He's a philandering priest, exactly. Wow. And so was it basically, did you want to be a priest until you discovered music? Or did you go through different iterations of things? How, yeah, how did you get from wanting to be a priest to, to, to being a composer? Yeah, I'm trying to work it. Oh, yeah, after that, it was um, it was snooker player, for sure. Yeah, because uh, I used to, um, I won a youth club tournament and I took it as a green light. It's like the only thing I'd ever won. And uh, I remember my grand being really supportive of me for it. And we had a sort of a bonding thing over that. And and then and the same year, that's that sort of, that summer, it was the 1985 final and everyone was watching with Steve Davis, Dennis Taylor and snooker was just like this huge thing. Uh, yeah, and Steve I just, Davis. Yeah. Dennis Taylor used to wear the upside he's, down glasses. Yeah, he's the guy he? with the glasses. Yeah, the Irish guy. Yeah, and I was, everyone was just egging on um, Dennis to win. And it was just, you know, classic blackball game at the end. Uh, and he was totally behind the day before. And I was just like, this was like box office stuff. And then we look at it now and then it's like, I'm really struggling to still be into it. I still really like snooker, but I'm sort of slightly having to force myself. Um, the, the, Ronnie O'Sullivan's the only kind of jaw dropping. He's a bit like Hendrix. Watching Hendrix, you kind of, you're just like, there's something really emotive about watching that level of ability Brilliant. and flow again it's mm. a flow state that like this 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 um yeah we just before you started recording we were talking about flow states and those are really good examples of two people who are living that flow thing yeah well i suppose there's, there's personality as well isn't it there's you know personality within sports you sort of think of like well thinking going back but like the john McEnroe's, the sort of eric Cantona's, uh steve davis was a bit of a joker but ronnie o'sullivan certainly even now is like a real personality within the sport and it kind of creates this sort of mystique and and sort of magic around them but yeah he's 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 something else isn't he ronnie o'sullivan when you watch him yeah and it's it's yeah it's like the the the, the brilliance that so the charisma with the brilliance so you had people like Higgins or or Jimmy White who are also brilliant and and I don't don't think there's something about Ronnie O'Sullivan who's got who's kept it going for um for a huge amount and just just as a genius with it and just seems to and I sort of elevate the consciousness of the whole sport or like like Hendrix with a guitar or like you're saying Cantona or someone like that it's it's everything's different afterwards it's like now loads of players play with um left hand and right hand because that's what o'sullivan does and no one was even thinking about doing that and there was you know the best players ever at mm. the time and now loads of people are doing it. just stuff like that and just the effortlessness i mean you watch it and you're like this is a hard sport or federer watching federer play tennis it's just like so balletic there's something more mm. Um, so yeah, I was, I'm, I've just like I think that that's a really fascinating thing. With and with music, you can totally get there with 
with um, flow states and just being on the edge of your ability, but not too far and just slightly riding that wave of, of insights, which yeah. we, all, we all know that feeling and it's just like this just beautiful feeling of, and it's kind of elusive. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely dig into flow state because it's something that's I'm kind of very interested in. Um, how did the progression go then from Cardinal to Ronnie O'Sullivan to music, <laughs> <laughs> composing for t- film and TV? So, the, yeah, the music thing was a pure um, get into a band at school thing. One of my mates who I'm still friends with today, actually the two two people that I had, a, that we started the band with, that are still two of my oldest friends I see regularly. And he bought a really cheap bass amp and a bass. Um, and we sort of said, right, who's going to play bass? Who's going to play drums? Who's going to play guitar? I got the guitar. Um, Guy bought the bass, got the drums and gave the bass to my other mate. And that was it. We were just uh, started rehearsing. And just we, we set ourselves a date for a school gig. At the end of, we were about to leave school, so we would have been like 15, 16. And we were like, okay, let's, let's play a gig at the end of school in, in this end of school party. And, we did, we, and it was about six months away, and none of us knew how to play anything. Um, and it, I think the recording still exists, and we still didn't know how to play anything. We, Even on the night. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it was, um, it was so exciting and it was just like, oh, this is just the coolest thing. And, and I, was, I felt like after school, I felt supreme pressure about like what no one really prepared me about jobs and work and the idea of you might have to do a job you hate for the rest of your life. And, mm. and that's, that really freaked me out. So it's it sort of that coincided with, right, I've got to do music right from that moment. That was, that was it. It was just like, I can't not do this. I've got, I've got to do something I like. But obviously, so there you were playing live, whereas the world of a sort of like a TV film composer is generally one of isolation and sort of less recognition. So where was the switch from sort of like that buzz of kind of being on stage to tucked away in a man cave for sort of days, weeks, months at a time? Yeah, that was that was all to do with nerves, actually. I was never, I was really bad with stage fright. I did a lot of gigs where I was singing and stuff and I just, the trauma of before going on and all that and Mm. also the idea of being famous was always a bit you kind of want to be I I felt like I wanted to be successful in doing it in doing something but that fame might be weird and I always thought of a film TV composer as being slightly behind the scenes but doing a really cool job but none of the baggage that comes with being famous but um I know I definitely um associate with that because I did the singer-songwriter thing for quite a while and got to a point where I realised that, I don't know, there's there's some people almost thrive on that nervous energy before going on stage, whereas I was someone who, it, it, I didn't thrive on it at all. I sort of actually disliked it to, and to the point where I was asking myself, okay, why are you doing this? I never really wanted to be a performer. It's actually someone told me, oh, if you want to do music, you've got to be able to play live, which as an artist is true, but not as a producer or composer necessarily. So, Yeah, what, what, would, what would happen to you? Like, Because I remember having to just do these breathing exercises and stuff like that. And I would do whole gigs with my eyes closed, like entire gigs, just, and then sort of open them between songs or whatever. Oh, man. Yeah, just it was it's hard. Well, we once recorded a music, the first ever music video that we recorded. It wasn't really a music video, it was like a live video. And I was blown away by how petrified I looked. I was literally staring into space, one spot on the wall. There was no emotion on my face whatsoever, just going through the motions. And it's only when I sort of saw myself filmed. And it was my, my cousin who was editing the video and he was having real troubles, basically sort of trying to find angles where my face wasn't apparent because it just I just looked petrified. Um which was an eye opener and it obviously opened up doorways for me to sort of work on that. But I don't think I ever truly felt, but at the same time, at the same time I was gigging, um, Ed Sheeran was gigging a lot of the same venues around sort of Finsbury Park in London and even Michael Kiwanuka. Now there was, those were two guys who I saw live in a pub. Now when you're playing live in a pub, um, most people just sort of talk through your music. Um, but when those guys played, everybody stopped and I kind of just realized I was like there's a, there's a kind of a magic there maybe even that you talk about flow state that flow state I just think I will never have that as much hard as I practice and what have you I will never have that flow state when performing live that they have and they were just sort of captivating yeah it's funny you notice the ones don't you as well you notice the ones at the time that I, uh, if because I did a lot of gigs as well yeah and you're just like oh shit yeah 
Mm. That is someone that I'm, it's like, oh, it's a bit sort of simultaneously, wow, and oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and that's quite an interesting journey as well, that whole, oh, okay, um, I think I'm failing at this bit, but, but, but you can sort of shift it to something else. Again, like you say, you, you, you can shift it into a positive, well, I know this about myself, where, where, where can I point now? And that, that's an embodied experience rather than an intellectual one. You can think it as much as you like, but until you've been in situations where you're failing, or where you're just like, I'm not up for that challenge, but I'm definitely up for this challenge. And yeah. Th that's, yeah, that's a good journey to be on, I think. Uh, did you, you did you study music at university? Did you go to college? No. Um, or university? No, no that's, that's, that's the main source of my imposter syndrome, I'd say. Um, uh, <laughs> um, as for, yeah, for years I was, I was a bit worried about that, but I just kept on telling myself, Paul McCartney, Danny Elfman. You know, all, all these names which were blazing the trail yeah. of, of um, especially, and, and it's because film and TV music is tied up with the word composer as well, which all, all, always had this idea of, you know, the, the painting and the quill, the, the mat, you know, the, the <laughs> yes. doing things in the conservatoire type thing. And just using that word just felt sticky for so many years for me. Mm. Um, and then I, I think you, you just get over it, don't you? You realise, I think I, I might be a bit experienced now and yeah. and it's okay. There's these brilliant musicians who are around to help you with You Can't Notate and, and you know, and then that that's that's something I've only recently embraced actually with the LCO stuff and obviously Ben Corrigan, who you know, he's this yes. sort of ball of energy and, and, and uh, enthusiasm and uh, sort of having him in sessions and stuff and then just realizing why haven't I done this like just embrace the idea of working with musicians and and getting scores prepared from the stuff I've written so so that sort of the idea of sort of outsourcing different elements of the composer's role or sort of like the musical role that's a fairly recent thing before that you would just try and do everything yourself you? yeah yeah literally in a room isolated or, or not not sort of you know being scared to collaborate and stuff like that but um i had a really um kind of epiphany moment i, I did a session at angel with lco i was doing a short film um actually ben was like why don't you use the lco i was like okay cool and i, I just booked seven players i had a small budget and um um there was a load of at the end of this it ended up being hardly any music in the film and and there was this whole afternoon session booked with all these players. And so I brought along these piano improvs I'd done and just said to Ben, look, just write, block out the chords for the musicians. And then we would, I would sort of say to them, okay, play cr crotchets, choose a note from a triad, play crotchets. And then just do all these different takes where this feel was evolving. And I was just, it became really emotional because the music that was coming out was mine, but it was also just had this added aliveness to it from all these super experienced masters of their instruments responding emotionally to something and it, it was evolving and and i was like okay this this is it for me this is what i'm going to do now and that's basically a lot what what of my lot of my records of the film score i did was based on that process a lot of it as much as it could be if you're in a super tight search schedule um yeah sure um and just sort of just to touch on well, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely come back to the you know, the material you did with the L, 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 LCO. You mentioned imposter syndrome. Is that something that's confined to the past now or is it something that's still there and you just have a handle on it? It's always there. I think it's tied up with the, the, the you know, the self, the work on the self, which is an entire lifetime's thing. And I think I think for any artist, we, as, as you know, it's like there's nothing and then there's something and... Um, and there's always a question mark about there's always and I think there has to be during the process is is this any good? Uh some and some days the same piece you can answer, oh my god, no. And then the, the other day you can hear it and go, Oh no, 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 this is great. And and that that sort of objective versus being in it and then being objective about it, it's just this constant process. And and with and, and I think the only thing that makes the imposter syndrome dwindle is just the knowledge that you've been there before and got through it and and that so that's the sort of a confirmation thing so i guess in answer it, it does dwindle yeah actually yeah but i think it never really goes and but it's it, it's it's like a it, it can become a positive thing it becomes a sort of sign a signpost of of experience it's like no i know i'm gonna have doubts yeah. and that's 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 just inevitable that's an inevitable part of the process sure yeah i i was recently introduced to the the concept of the inner bastard um 
otherwise known as the inner critic. But it's that that internal dialogue, sort of on repeat, sort of second guessing everything you do. And you just touched on it there. At times, when it comes to sort of reflecting and looking at, you know, assessing whether something is good or not, that inner critic is actually really valuable. But when you're trying to get into flow state and be creative, um, is a liability. Um, so in that instance, it's silencing the inner bastard or just sort of listening to him and going, yeah, they're there, off and you go. And then as and when you need him, bring him back. Yeah. Yeah, oh God, that really reminds us a great term, the inner bastard, because it, it, it suggests there's something going on with the shadow there. So it mm. can be nasty and it can actually bite you as well. You, it can be too nasty and just, just say your shit. Oh, no. And then, you know, then there's, <laughs> there's a sort of downward spiral. Or it can just be this truth thing that, that you're kind of would rather ignore, but is, is it's just a harsh truth. And that's yeah. when it's kind of and if you can integrate that, it can just be such an asset. Yeah. Yeah. And so going back to that, that kind of first session with the uh, London Contemporary Orchestra, whereby there was obviously in a sort of like an epiphany for you um, and there was an element of disillusionment, but within that moment or during that project, you kind of rediscovered something. Yeah, for sure. I, I, think, I think it was um, the st- real start of a, of a, of a, of a rediscovery. of, And a, a lot of it was... Um, I alluded to it a minute ago about just spending sort of the last 20 years in a room on my own and not really collaborating and that um, the importance of relationships as well. Um, and I think I just really viscerally felt that in that day. I just felt, yeah. this is what they bring. And this is, this is something that's actually really integral to life as well. It's not just, so um, yeah, that really felt me. And, and, and I'd been doing a lot of projects just for money as well. Cause I'd had a baby Um so 2011, Sam was born and, and this would have been like 2015, 2016, 2017, all this. So about 2015, maybe. And I'd just been work, 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 saying yes to everything, regardless of whether it was a really inspiring project um, or another daytime TV show, which, which you know, I, I, I should say I was glad I really did. I mean, I got some really good chops in terms of the amount of different styles of music I had to do for, for certain projects I was doing. Um, but I was basically not connected to it in any way. I was just, just like, this is just a job, isn't it? I'm sitting in a garden, uh, sitting in a room on my own doing music I probably wouldn't do if it wasn't for the fact that I'm, it's my job. And um, I sort of made a conscious effort to not do that anymore and I, I started listening to music for enjoyment again which had sort of slipped actually and I, I think this was around the time I met you wasn't it um, yeah I think so because um, I, I think you're right I completely forgot actually that I was really quite disillusioned then and I started I got myself a real piano in the studio um, and made sure I was I started playing a lot, lot of piano as guitar was my first instrument and I was getting a bit I remember John Lennon said a really good thing about it, like all of his late Beatles early solo stuff was um piano a lot of piano and it's because he didn't know how to play it and and it's like with the guitar he was just finding himself going to the same things again and he was surprising himself more on that and I love that I love that about um Joni Mitchell as well she had like 50 different guitar tunings the Mm. idea of you sort of don't know what you're doing every time you pick up the instrument keeps you interested it's like you're playing with a toy every time yeah which is which is really not, and i and i sort of went into that with the piano a bit and um uh and and i had this sort of barometer of of when i was playing something just whenever i felt moved uh, um, by something I, that was my sign it's like i'm just going to go with that i'm connected to something to this yeah. this otherness i don't know what it is and then that i would use that as a as a sort of barometer to to pursue a piece of music to finish it and then and, and just really care again, really care about what the music sounded like and, and how I was connected to it and just exploring what that whole thing is, that beautiful mystery of music and mm. in, a, in a similar way that art and poetry is. It's just that it connects you to some other form of reality that we can never use language for or we can never really explain. And um, just reconnecting to that again, which is a sort of just remembering what it was like when you first did it before it became a job. Yeah. And yeah, I think... Sure. And, the, the, what was really affirming about that is that it, I did that and I put out a couple of records and that's when I got my first feature film and on the back of someone hearing that and, and, and it was like, wow, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing some, uh, just being genuine, really. 
yeah um rather than chasing stuff and that's what bought it and it's there's there's a real power there's so many paradoxes in that sort of stuff that you can yeah. it's sort of the only way is to not really chase it <laughs> yeah and be genuine interesting. yeah it, yeah it's interesting because i certainly think when i because i'm quite late to to music with my sort of checkered career of various things before sort of quitting it all to do music and i certainly remember thinking that all of a sudden doing it professionally changes your relationship with it and it sounds like yeah i mean i wonder if this is a sort of common thing but as you say you kind of you got to a point where you sort of something something broke something snapped and you sort of went back to a place where you're like okay let's go back to why i started doing this in the first place rediscover that sort of that that passion um it sounds like it's massively improved your relationship with music because as you say you're now writing from a place of like okay does this move me do you think your musical output has improved as a result of that um yeah for sure i I feel like that's the place the only place i want to be now that's the only valid place It's, it's it's kind of like um well if we're here for a short period of time I'm I'm going to do it properly or not at all. I'm going to do something which means something. Just it's, again, it feels really connected to meaning. Um, yeah. How do you find? How do you have you? Because obviously, some people talk about writer's block. I don't necessarily subscribe to writer's block. It's you know, if you're if you're a musician, you have to make music, and um, waiting for inspiration to strike isn't the way you do it. You get you get started, and then inspiration. Have you got? Have you sort of got? tools that help you kind of get into because you again you talked about flow or get into a into a state whereby you can write better or you can find that flow quicker um there are there are definitely like when you're i think when you're on a film and tv thing and you've got a deadline there are tricks like if you've got 20 cues to do or whatever it's it's probably a good idea to only spend one hour on each cue no more than one hour don't get bogged down oh, and, and the, the the importance of having a break of like you get way more achieved if you have a break after three hours that, than if you were to plow through that mm. sort of first half hour back you have so many more insights than yeah than than if you'd have just struggled on because you've got so much to do in it and, and so those sorts of those are sort of tricks but i think it is a really fascinating topic topic this sort of because i think when doing when you're not constrained by deadlines like a lot of projects have if you're doing your own music i think it's so like it's so different to um i've had to really relearn that i haven't got deadlines like i mean it's good that i've got a work ethic from that so i feel like if i'm not getting things done not progressing that's a good thing to be used to yeah um but also just having faith that if i'm stuck on a piece something will emerge and it will emerge it's all going on in your subconscious you care about the piece you know you do you can't force it and and you you might find like a, a week later you fire that one up again and you're like all the answers are there or or not. But just knowing that I still care about this piece, it's not there at the moment. Um and I love that process, that faith in the emergence of something. But yeah. also there there is something also related which is completely paradoxical to that, is um one of my favorite um philosophers, just well, polymath, amazing guy called Ian McGilchrist. Um, I went to see a lot of his lectures and I, I managed to be super lucky and have sit next to him at this meal. And I was talking to him about just being in a really low point about like, I'm getting up and just not feeling like I've got any purpose. What, you know, again, this meaning thing, this like, why am I showing up? Um, and he said, well, just, just show up, literally just show up a little bit like sort of, um, I think what you were just asking me, you know, Steve, Stephen Pressfield talks about it as resistance. Yeah. So, and, and I don't, even though I was I was feeling low, you know, there are some per- periods. I don't know how many people go through this, but you know, we have our ups and downs, and there are some days where I just feel like I just don't want to be doing it. Um, but even those days, I made sure I had the piano set up with the mics, all ready to go, and I just said to myself, "Okay, part of my routine is a twenty-minute improv on the piano every day." And I think I was just half asleep during most of them because I was just like, it was just a routine. I wasn't even thinking about it. And after about six months, I reviewed some pieces and there were those sort of passages of real coherence, like for maybe a minute. And you're like, oh, like, okay, something happened there. And I, I, you, I just don't know. I don't know, remember feeling they yeah. were coherent. I just, but listening back, they felt, and that was the genesis of my flow states piece because it was like, I'm going to, this is a real rich idea for, so I did like 
I edited a lot of those, made them into um, solo pieces, uh, but also explored doing that with other musicians and then ex- uh, explored doing it like a hybrid where you've, you've, done a, you've done an improv and then, uh, the, then you score out certain parts for musicians to play. And then they, so they played the scored out bits and then they improv on top of it as well. And there's this sort of hybrid. Is this composed? Is this influenced? And that's, that's just really fascinating. And I, I've, I've gone off on a divergent thing there, but I think, I think it's really related to, um, yeah, just sort of showing up. And, oh, I don't, I don't know what it's related to, but. No, absolutely. And is that, that 20 minute improv, you sort of, is that kind of like early in the morning? Is that kind of first thing that you were doing that or? Uh, I was just making sure that it happened every day. Um, so usually, because I'm not great, and when I'm in that state, I'm not great with early mornings, but I, I am great at coming into the studio at least, you know, to sort of pretend yeah. I'm working. Um, so, so I'd basically just do that. Yeah, whenever I was in the studio, I was like, okay, here's my 20 minutes. Yeah, I love that. I, it's interesting because, um, have you ever heard of morning pages? No. What's that? It's the idea that when you wake up first thing in the morning, you basically sort of sit down for 20 minutes, half an hour, and you just write. It just can be kind of incoherent stream of, but you just write. And I was, I heard that. I, I did try it for a while and it was at a, quite a dark time in my life and I didn't quite like what I was sort of reading back to myself. But I had this idea at the beginning of the year, is like, could you do that musically? Sort of like literally. So in a morning, get up, first thing you do, sit down, a bit like you're doing, but sit down at your sort of keyboard or whatever for just 30 minutes and just, just write something for the bin and it's as if it's like it doesn't matter it's i'm just going to noodle around with some ideas and if it's complete rubbish i'll just throw it away but it's almost almost the idea of sort of getting the crap out of the way before you properly sit down but then at the same time it sounds like what you're saying is actually when you listen back to some of those things it's like actually there's there's some there's some nuggets of gold here that you don't even remember um so i i yeah i love that idea that that's that's, really cool what you just said that that really reminds me because i was talking to someone um just telling someone recently that I'm having loads of dreams recently. I'm not a huge dreamer and I'm just having these really visceral kind of dreams. And they were saying exactly that. It sounds like the morning pages. Like if you write, just write down, even if you're half asleep, just what, what happens in them. It's, it's mm. like, apparently there's some real, there's some real key insights in all of that stuff. And that relates to, uh, yeah, I guess it does relate to that showing up thing and just, just yeah. doing stuff. I think, I mean, there's this whole idea that, that 99% of our consciousness is subconscious. And there's, so there's so much going on there. That's kind of Jungian psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. And then, you know, by tapping into that, um, well, it's, I mean, we couldn't come on to talking about flow state, but you talk, you mentioned flow state a few times as well. And um, there's talk about, you know, microdosing uh, psilocybin um, as a, is a good way to sort of tap into the subconscious and this fl- does that flow state. So actually maybe flow state lies somewhere between conscious and subconscious and actually by tapping into the subconscious, that's where the crazy. Yeah, I, I, think there's, I think there's a, re- there's a reason why, you know, the, the psychedelic renaissance and the conversations around philosophy and flow states, that, that they are chiming with each other now again. Mm. Um, it's, it's really coming back and it, it is a f- superbly fascinating you know, yeah. just rich vein of stuff. Amazing, yeah. Right, well, I think this is probably a good time to go under the skin. Under the skin. You may, you mentioned sort of like that, that, that idea of de- deadlines and, you know, you've the, the process is, is slightly different when you've got hard deadlines and there's people waiting for stuff. Um, you did a, a film, um, What They Had, um, that that Hollywood moment, um, which a few years but go, ago now, but just sort of interested in, in sort of touching on that because I seem to remember when that came through, not only did you sort of, you know, were you scoring a film, which is a big ask, but you had relatively little time to do it in. What was, talk us through the, the sort of process for that and then I'm interested in sort of afterwards then sort of maybe looking a little bit more about the process of writing your own music. But what was the kind of process from having that first meeting to then sort of, getting ideas down and ultimately sort of scoring the film yeah well it was on the back of um one of my records that came out um someone from decca who who had published it reached out so the music supervisor who was mary ramos she's amazing supervisor she does um all of tarantino's films and it's just done hundreds 
Um, so unfortunately, at this point in the interview, we lost Danny's audio, but I can fill you in as to what he said. Um, so music supervisor Mary Ramos reached out to Decker, with whom Danny has published, asking if they had anyone who could score their film. Um, they forwarded Danny's album on to the director, who who loved it. Um, by this time, it was August of that year, um, and everything was looking good. But Danny heard nothing. Apparently in the background there were some music publishing issues going on uh, which needed to be resolved before they could proceed. Anyway, Danny eventually received a copy of the film fully edited with a temp score. And it was it's a really beautiful film actually, um, just sort of an ensemble piece. And it moved me, genuinely moved me. So, as soon as I was um, finished with it, I went into the studio and tried to respond, just, just to record on the piano and respond. Um, played around with some themes and responses. And at that moment, the director called me for the first time. And I was, st- I'd, you know, I was sniveling actually, because I was a moving film and I'd, I'd cried. And, and I said, I'm still still really moved by your beautiful film. And, she, and um, she was just really chilled and supportive and just like, the audio cut again. Um, but anyway, Danny and director Elizabeth Chomko continue their conversation uh, about the film and felt really good about going forward. Then cue another long period of nothing happening. The job was finally confirmed in the first week of December of that year and it needed to be delivered before Christmas and it was very music heavy. But um, so, but, so within that time I had to, to do like 20 cues organize musicians book studios of which there were just none available right before christmas it was really weird i was like i managed to get a small session at angel small session at air at adele with um you know four or five players at a time um but again like the the the, the eureka moments in in those ones were the i knew i wanted to leave time for improv and they were the best moments. So there's this, this really good cellist with LCO called um, Max Ruisi. Um, and he improved a line over one a really delicate piece. It's just it's literally a two-note phrase which just lifted the cue at, at the right moment. And I was like, I that's I needed that. Thank you. <laughs> and it's like and and just leaving the door open for these things. And and you've you've basically created the whole situation for that you know the the circumstances for that to happen in and encouraged it um and i i think when it comes off it's so gratifying to just and then when i'd finished that cue and a couple of others the director phone said thank you so much this is this is just what that scene needed and and so that process was but but yeah it was so fraught but also like super exciting and um and was it did it it sounds like it was whilst there was all the, the fraughtness of booking studios, et cetera, but the actual process of making the music, it, it, was it, did that happen quite quickly and, and was that effortless? It, yeah, I think it did, actually. I knew, I knew that a lot of solo real piano stuff was needed, quite delicate stuff. I mean, I, 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 I'd be lying if I said it was chilled because I just, I just was so panic in fact i was spending I, are you aware of this this list going around of film composers that have been fired it's like it's like there's like 500 it's basically everyone who have been fired multiple times on films and it's the, this idea that you haven't arrived as a film composer unless until you've been, you've fired. been fired and uh i just the entire process i was waiting to be fired like imposter syndrome huge like this is yeah, yeah i've got the job but this here's where they find out yeah. <laughs> you know it's like and and also just that yeah just the stress of getting through that amount of work was just really was um so i i, I it was fraught yeah um and which cue was it that you mentioned that had that uh, improvised cello line in it because i I'll, i'm going to link to all everything that we mentioned in the in the conversation i'm going to link to on in the show notes but it'd be nice to just sort of link. yeah there's there's just a two-note cello phrase in um in i think the cue was called power of attorney which is so dull isn't it as a as a as a as a, as a title but uh, yeah it's funny because uh in my conversation with Stephen Warbeck, he talked about getting fired. He actually got fired from a job before he even started it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that's hilarious. A, that's an extra achievement. Um, but yes, I think it's, it's obviously something that's more common than people realise because obviously as a composer, it's not something you generally shout about. But um, yeah, I think that that's something that also sort of petrifies me because it's 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 quite difficult to separate yourself from 
from that. Your identity is sort of uh, wrapped up in being a composer. And if you get fired, it's sort of like all of a sudden you're questioning whether or not you are a composer and then ultimately your sort of identity. So it's, it's, yeah, yeah and I, I, and I think that that extends into life, doesn't it? Just just your identity being wrapped up with your career, and when, yeah, especially definitely. with careers that are so hard and so competitive and so take so long to get any traction in, it's really hard to separate your well being from from how well your career is going. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's psychologically, no, it's a real conscious struggle for me. Actually, is is um, my I'm tr- yeah disentangling my identity with how well things are going with work. Yeah. Um. And so it was it it was this project where you had more studio time booked than you needed which led to the improv session which led to the kind of like the birth of your No that was that that was a short film about 2 years earlier so I'd already had um oh, okay. again it was these LCR LCO players as Rob Ames um um Galia and a brilliant cellist called Ollie Coates um and um Ben Corrigan as well who was really good at sort of score prepping and and just knew the lco people really well um so it was those people were in place then i was like well i know i want these people please let them be available um Um, so just quick quick question there because this is something else that's come up is what was it about the lco that was made you so keen to use them versus you know anyone else yeah in, in that first session i had with them they were just utterly open there was no because I always had this fear. We were just talking about it. Like the reason I mentioned them was that that's the first time I I used classical musicians was because I had this imposter syndrome, the idea that I couldn't be telling trained musicians what to do or or what are the rules. I haven't got the rule book for this. I didn't go to a conservatoire or whatever. I really did. Um, it was stupid. I, I was just lacked confidence for for a very long time, um, and I found that they are just a sort of brand of personality. Um, Rob is this just sort of what you see is what you get very chilled out very experimental eclectic music taste just happens to um, be conductor and, and viola, viola player for a brilliant orchestra and it's just like it's it was like working with a musician that I would have worked with if I was in a band it just felt felt like that and and not only that he was just encouraging experimentation like those, those were the bits that really was was flo- rather than going through the motions reading scores it was like oh let's have some fun there was one point where uh, they were just doing. I think Ollie had tuned his one of his cello strings down to to barely nothing, super slack, and that the the bass clarinetist was sort of just doing this weird spitting thing, percussive thing into the just uh, which went off in these just loads of tangents and stuff. And that that stuff, like, like they were just really gunning for that, and I was like, this is too this is too left field for me. I can't, you know. Uh, but that's you know, it's really great to know that they just want to do stuff like that, and I I just felt completely like, wow, this is this is definitely the way to do things, you know. Yeah, and and yeah. I felt I felt allowed, allowed and more comfortable. Like I I really got the sense that um, they wanted. They probably sensed that I was a little bit nervous, and that I think they really wanted me to be feel comfortable, which felt really great. Like I felt, I felt like I was in good hands as well. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's same with a, a good sort of mix engineer and a good producer is um, somebody who makes you feel comfortable because yeah, quite often you've gone in there off the back of weeks and weeks of preparation. There's a question mark at the back of your mind going, "All right, when they play this, is it going to sound as good as it does on my mock-ups?" Um, and there's the time constraint as well. So if you've got someone to just sort of go, "Hey, don't worry." I've got this. You're in good hands, and it sounds like amazingly that actually the LCO were also a part of that equation, which is which is amazing. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. The people, the again, it's about relationships. People matter. People, yeah, yeah. It, 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 that and and I think they're kind of prior to the people. The relationships are prior to the, you know, uh, that's so important. That dynamic between the space between people. And it's every, like you say, everyone involved, engineers, what, you know, that it's, oh, you can really see it in, um, have you seen Get Back? Like one of the revelations for me um, was was watching Glyn Johns, um, the the engineer. I mean, everybody, like if you're a Beatles geek, you know who Glyn Johns is, but watching him now, after all these years without all this footage, there's this, he's, he's just a revelation in how much he brought to those sessions. And, and yeah. Amazing. 
yeah, it's the whole the whole entourage. And it sounds like as well that you feel that the end product, that the kind of leveraging the talents of musicians around you ultimately leads to a better end product than if you were to sort of be doing it all yourself. Yeah, and 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 not only that, it's more than the sum of the parts as well. So again, the relationships seems to to make something emergent. That's more. Mm. It's more, and it really is. And I think, yeah, it's fascinating, okay. amazing. Um, and so, okay, so we've got kind of like an understanding of the sort of the, the process for that, which is maybe the more, sort of more traditional uh, project. Um, but you're currently working on a John Vaveki project, which is somewhat different in terms of structure of process um should you tell us a bit about that yeah now this is this is really floating my boat and just because it's so unusual um basically john vaveki i imagine most people won't know some people will i guess uh, is he's a he's a professor of cognitive science at the university of toronto he's got this youtube series called awakening from the meaning crisis and um also load multiple interviews he's a, he's not just a cognitive science he's he's a philosopher and he's a massive expert on wisdom traditions and stuff so this awakening from the meaning crisis has got just a crash course on philosophy um cognitive science just everything you know religion culture and what is if you just sort of, and obviously it's, i know it's probably a subject you could go hugely down a rabbit hole in but just briefly what is what do we mean by the meaning crisis yeah i was hoping you wouldn't ask me that it's 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 like it's been called the meta crisis the sense making crisis just this feeling of bewilderment that everyone has at the moment like trump um capital building brexit um polarization social media yeah. truth post truth like what's true now you know the yeah, whole covid sure. vaccine thing like what's What's going on? And yeah. it's a crisis. It's a genuine crisis. But I think also the meaning part of it is, I think, is connected to do with the wisdom traditions that are no longer really in our culture. Like, it's quite strange. Like So even though religion clearly has its problems, but there's what baby has been thrown out of the bathwater because we've clearly lost religion in us. Most people don't go to church anymore. Um and 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 there are wisdom traditions around the world, like a huge, you know, the yoga's huge, tai chi's huge, and all of that stuff. It's like what it, what is in that? What is in that? And and what's what what is what's gone from our culture from it? And and I think it's way more than people realise, and it's contributing a huge amount to this sort of anxiety crisis or whatever there is going on. And there's so much, so many, you know, so many things it's super complex and the whole idea of complexity and and the meta the looking at everything mm. um is 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 a fascinating thing so so there's this guy john Vaveki, who's who's sort of been tackling that for a long time um and he's done a lot of really important work and 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 there's this uh guy called um david fuller who runs a youtube channel and, and a sort of organisation, actually, who run courses called Rebel Wisdom. And he's an ex-journalist, or he is, he is a journalist. He, he worked for um, Channel 4 News and BBC, did documentaries and stuff. And um, he's, uh, him and Rebel Wisdom have been brilliant at um, curating the sort of best philosophers, cultural commentators, journalists, podcasters, scientists, therapists, just looking at sense-making and John Vaveki has sort of shone through as one of these kind of main guys that people uh, resonate with so uh, they're just trying to work up work um, David's trying to set up a project where he's going to make a documentary about John's work and um, he's reaching out what's fascinating about the project is he's reaching out to people who know his work so scientists philosophers so some really sort of galaxy brain people uh, as also, but also animators who are really aware of his work, and you know um, myself um, doing the music. I mean, this is super early stages, um, uh, and so we have the, have these sort of really interesting Zoom calls and about what's a way into this stuff. And also, what David is brilliant at is talking about or his awareness of the mainstream media, what he sort of calls the legacy media, um, versus. So he's now got a successful YouTube channel and is making really high quality, nuanced stuff, a bit like, you know, long form podcasts and stuff. 
on on the new media, which seems to be so out of sight of the mainstream. And and he's so he's sort of saying, okay, so what would a, a Netflix version of John Vavaki documentary look like and what would be a way in and what can all these people so it's like this loads of clever people um doing something quite punk and trying to make a film about like how do you make this accessible how do you make get people really into this and um it's just really floating my boat because I'm really interesting in really interested in those conversations and you know well as as far as Netflix is concerned, having tigers in it could be, uh, could be useful. <laughs> yeah, that, that, oh God, that was grim, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. That, I suppose there's, there's quite a lot of sort of mean, meaning crisis uh, sort of in, in, in the Tiger King, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, the Tiger King, I think this is the second episode of the podcast where the Tiger King's come up. I don't know whether that says a lot about me and my relationship with it. But... Yeah, well, it was fascinating, isn't it? What a weird guy. Yeah, and that whole so. murder thing, and, and so, but, but I think there's something in that. Like the social dilemma, dilemma was the most viewed Netflix doc, and then there was something by um, David Bedil recently about social media, and this is all connected to Rebel Wisdom and what they talk about the polarization social media, and and Russell Howard recently had Jordan Peterson on, so that's Jordan Peterson going into mainstream comedy, which is quite he's quite a very interesting figure. I'm definitely not a Petersonian you know, philosophy. I think there's a lot of flaws in his, but he was such an interesting figure in terms of the culture war and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I find, it, I find it really fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like with this John Vivaki process that, you know, perhaps traditionally with a film, somebody comes to you, you know, maybe once the script has been written, if you're lucky, if not, when they've kind of nearly finished shooting and they suddenly go, oh God, we need some music. But with this, it's almost like the concept has been created and they're sort of having the composers almost like be a part of creating the the, the concept itself. That's the thing, yeah. The concept sort of hasn't been... The idea of wanting this guy's... That, that, this, that this is important stuff and why is it getting missed? Mm. Um, and then what can these 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 group of people do to make it come about i mean it literally is new ground for me i've never i've never but it's, it's fascinating because i th I re always thought it was a really wise thing in the nft um i know the nfts where they would make th like if you did the composing course there you would have to spend the first year learning how to make films in different disciplines of filmmaking mm. and that and how that really informs your entire sort of knowledge of your own job in the end your own speciality it's sort of it's integrated in a sort of holistic way and i feel like this project is a really fascinating way of of doing that but but also in a, in a sort of punk spirit as well because there's a, there's definitely a lot of people who have never made films there's a lot of people who are also experienced in film and media as well and just sort of pulling all that together and seeing what the hell what the hell's going to I don't know i'm excited to do it i just yeah. but i haven't got a lot to say on the process yet because it's i'm sort of in it in the super yeah. early stages yeah well it, i suppose it also ties in with what you were talking about earlier that kind of the idea that's the synergy of having multiple people all coming together to sort of create something is hopefully that end product will be you know certainly very different to what it would have been if it was just the brainchild of one person but then hopefully you know maybe sort of better for it as you've got wisdom from different people from different walks of life it sounds like you've got psychologists philosophers everyone involved and so like the end product i mean yeah wow i think probably the challenge is like taking all of that input and distilling it down into something simple and accessible that's the key yeah. like what's what what would hook people into this and why would they feel excited about it um yeah yeah because it's it's super complex it's 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 a tool and i you know i have to say it's it's not really my job to be doing that but if if, if i can do some part of it with music um Mm. you know that, that's helpful along that i've been just going to be fascinated in the whole process basically yeah well it certainly ties in as well with what you were saying earlier about you know does does it mean something are you sort of excited and inspired by it and it certainly sounds like it's uh, right up your street in terms of subject matter and even the kind of the process of of um creating it yeah honestly and i didn't i didn't know whether to talk about it with you because you know this is a this is a um sync you know film music media music podcasts and it's like well i don't even know how much music there's going to be in it but yeah. <laughs> i i really care about whatever music there is in it and i also really care about the um this particular topic and this particular film and how it gets made mm. um, and as a composer i think that's a really important part 
of your job and career as well. It's, it's like we were talking about that before, where, where you don't want to be phoning it in all your life. You want to, you want to sort of be involved in things. And, and if your bit of the puzzle is relevant to that, that's, that's great. That's, you know, I, I feel really, I feel that that's really important. Yeah. But then also recognising when, if it doesn't require music or that also taking a step back and rather than going, oh yeah, you definitely put some music in here because if it doesn't need it, actually that's kind of a really important Absolutely. decision yeah, as well. Yeah. I've, I've been on all the emails. You've got to have some music. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's just- <laughs> Spent a lot of time listening to your, reading your emails and listening to these calls. Like Getting a taste. <laughs> I always think that, you know, as creatives, we're hugely influenced probably in the sort of more formative years of our lives as, as children, teenagers, whatever, by the music that we, we listen to, that we consume. Um, what are kind of some of the seminal pieces of music or albums? It could be, that could be songwriters and artists as well as sort of any sort of like film composers. But can you sort of trace a sort of a, almost a chronology of influences that people that have really influenced you and helped, you know, not, it, I suppose it doesn't even necessarily need to shine through in the music that you, I suppose it will in some way, but it doesn't not to say, you know, um, it's going to be the same as what you're doing now, but uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, what are your influences, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I, well, there's loads. Um, I would say m- primarily, you know, sort of 60s, 70s. Um, you know, I, I, as a kid, I mean, the Beatles were so accessible to children. I'm noticing it with my own child. We they did Beatles rock band on that on the PlayStation and stuff and and he's getting it he's getting just this, they're so accessible so much energy to their early stuff and the the, the whole sort of shift they did to, to some more more experimental experimental stuff and complex stuff and they're a fascinating um band just generally to to um just look at the culture of music through and like how they influenced culture and how culture influenced them and this sort of explosive. I love the idea of the uh, Brian Eno concept of seniors. There's a, there's a scene which, because there's so many people doing it, it has its own genius. It has its own oh. sort of like um, he, he he likened it to a, a lot of um, Russian abstract art. And he was like, he knew about twenty artists who were doing it. Then he went to St. Petersburg and just saw hundreds. And there's there was this scene of and it's where people talk about Kandinsky, but it was one of like hundreds of people. And it was the the art was so good because it was like a kind of collective intelligence, mm. which was um raising Yeah, and, and i so I feel like the sixties has has got so much of that going on through the Beatles and um you know, people like Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan as well. Like um I've I found myself returning to the Beatles and Dylan a lot recently. I'd completely not been listening to them for years. I've been into sort of film music and, you know, I was into Johan Johansson for quite a bit and um, a lot of, yeah, just sort of listening to film music and relating it to my career and sort of, but I'd say my primary influences are, are yeah, sort of singer songwriters, bands like the Beatles. Um, I, I got heavily into U2 in the, uh, in the sort of early eighties and their early albums. And then sort of when I was about 14, or 15 uh, I think it was about 14 maybe I went to see them uh when the Joshua on the Joshua Tree tour uh a day it sort of took a day off school and that's sort of a memory of adventure and I got a bit obsessed with them um they're an interesting yeah they're, they're an interesting band um and also um there was we went to this place I, I still don't know quite where it was another place I we went to at school was um this place called the Clubfoot, which was a Clarendon hotel. I think it was in Hammersmith. And we were like 13 or 14. No, definitely no more than 14. Going up and just a kind of drinking and, and sort of losing two and a half pints of sweat and getting clothes ripped in this sort of mosh pit, watching psychobilly bands. Right. You, you, made, you made it sound like it was a school trip there. I was like, wow, you was a pretty progressive school you went to. Yeah, really progressive school, yeah. No, we're like, we had to, I don't know how any of our parents thought it was okay. Like I, couldn't, like, I think about my niece, who's sort of barely allowed to walk home from school. And I was, and, and just what a different time that was. But yeah, I was just listening to sort of psychedelic like bands like the Meteors. And I wasn't heavily into it. A lot of people at my school were really into The Clash uh, and going up to London to see The Damned and, and, um, so there's that sort of punk thing going on. And I did get into that a bit. I was never heavily into it. Um, so, yeah, it's just all that sort of thing, really, that that um, 
and and you know that 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 Peter Jackson documentary about the the Beatles that came out recently, I just fully went back there. The whole of December, I was just immersed in mm. watching them work together and stuff. Um, so that's been yeah. I'd say I'd say they're they're they're. I, I, it's kind of a boring one, but they're definitely key. And then later on, I loved um, songwriters like Roddy Frame from Aztec Camera, um, uh, Neil Finn from Crowded House. Really love his songwriting. Um, uh, yeah, you know, good sort of good songwriters. Terry Hall from the Specials did a really good few solo albums in the '90s, which has sort of got lost a bit. But produced by Ian Browdy um, of the Lightning Seeds, a really good one called yeah. Home. Uh, it's, yeah, it's sort of adult pop stuff. Yeah. And what about, is there anything kind of modern stuff that's coming sort of out, has been coming out over sort of recently? Is there anything that sort of inspires you? I really like, there's, I don't know, there FKA Twigs, is that, I really like, um, oh yeah, is FKA Twigs. I don't know, even know who they are. I think it's a, a woman on her own, but the production is kind of super interesting, cutting edge. There's a, an album of, a few years ago I got into called LP1, um and she's got something new i think it was last year came out i've been really into that just sonically really interesting um what else i mean i i listened to i was really into um sort of um the max rictory sort of johansson stuff because it was tied into sort of the sort of i, I thought it was a really interesting shift in film scoring where where um there's about maybe oh, 5 years ago the sort of Zimmer model, which is still happening and still great, um, was also that like a lot of A-list Hollywood films were being done by Johansson, um, like really big films, and and I found that a really interesting shift. And Max Richter came into that, and um, and then artists around that, around erased tapes and stuff. I was sort of interested in that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, I've gone away from that. I don't know if it's because it's it was a trend or whether I'm just not as interested. Um, but but yeah, I was into that for a while. Um, yeah. But I'd say now, I say now, yeah, I'm just uh, anything with interesting production. There's, um, but it's really hard remembering artists these days because I've got like about three or four Spotify playlists which I'm adding to a lot. But I can't remember who the hell's on them. I just like listening to them. It's a really yeah. hard thing to talk about, which is terrible for the artists. But um, yeah, I totally. It's, and it seems to be the same for everyone. Is like you just you hear tracks and you don't actually know who they're by. Um, but you know you like them, but yeah, it's um, it's just it's the way we consume music. You know, say back at, back in the day, the Beatles, you'd buy albums and you'd consume the whole album, and that album told a story. Whereas now we cherry pick the tracks that we listen to, so it changes changes our relationship, uh, I suppose. There's a really good there's a really good film composer. Um, I I met him out in Toronto when I was there, and he was just a really unassuming guy. But it turns out he's done loads of stuff. A guy called Rob Simonson. I think he's uh, he's done the recent Ghostbusters thing, which I confess I haven't listened to or seen. But um, he's sort of done loads of films on a low in the low key. He does a lot of diverse genres and stuff like that. Oh, okay. And and also he um, he's also involved with this LA based sort of art collective called the Echo Collective, and they release records as artists as well. I think he's involved with them. I might be wrong about that. Um, and it's, it sort of appeals as a sort of someone who whose career you'd quite like, you know, being a member, yeah. having an arts collective side thing and doing some nice films and and uh, just being quite chilled with it. And that he, he seemed quite well, an inspiring character to me. Hey, if there's any ma- if there's a man who can, Dan, it's you. <laughs> it sounds like you're kind of on the way already. So, well, who who knows? I mean, it's it's just a nice. It's a, it'd be nice to get a nice balance, wouldn't it, with things? But that idea of life work balance that seems like another story we tell ourselves which is amazing is I'm, I'm conscious of time we're sort of uh, we, we, we're way over this has been um amazing there's there's so much um interesting stuff that we've sort of touched on there we've gone pretty deep which i knew we were going to do but was is always a good thing um before we go i've got a few quick fire questions for you um what scares dan Mulhern? ah Quick fire. God, you won't get that from me. Um, what scares me? Oh, God. Um, um, I would say uh, losing joy, lo- lo- failing to see joy. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I really love depth, but um, I've got to remember to not take things too seriously sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Well, that sort of maybe ties into the other question, which is if you could go back in time and uh, give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, 
Yeah. Fucking loads, actually. But, um, <laughs> um, there's more time than you think. Don't panic. Nice. And, um, oh, yeah, what's a little-known fact about you? <laughs> um, that I, um, I guess I, I once worked on a cruise ship and and jumped off uh not, not jumped off actually, but, um <laughs> man overboard <laughs> i i left i left it with um I, they keep your passport so you can't leave but i just had enough because they were phoning me so much in the in the sort of in the winter when i was penniless in london and saying can you fly out to miami and do another and it was just sort of really i was firstly wasn't qualified for it i was awful i was doing sound and lights for for the sort of lounge band i was terrible like doing tape cues that never were and, and i was just like what the hell am i doing and i in stockholm i just like sort of stayed off rather than got back on <laughs> watched the ship sail away and i i thought that's one of my um sort of small uh, adult rebellions that i ever did which sort of changed the course of my life i guess but that's not a small i, I guess that's something interesting that I did, I guess. But um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a little-known fact. It's uh, this sort of the, the previous life of Danny Mulhern. Amazing. Um, so yes, trivia. Um, do you have? Because I'm obsessed with sort of random facts about music or TV or movies. Do you have a sort of uh, a cool piece of trivia or little-known fact about? Oh God, um, I think the well, the only, the one that pops into my mind about films is is possibly dull. It's it's about it's that the, the um, there's no music in the birds that just pick picks because we always think of Hitchcock as um as being Bern, you, Bernard you know, Herman. all the Herman scores which are so iconic and and then there's just no music in the birds and it's like oh there's no music in the birds but I think about that every time now and I think most people know it I know I, I didn't I don't I can't, I can't even remember it it's so long ago that I saw it um oh well, that's a cool cool little thing well that I suppose it's, it's interesting as well because um it speaks to the power of um not having silence or not having music or sound design or just actually really good performances and that actually that can in of itself carry a film without the need to sort of underscore and underpin certain emotions um so yeah um amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to chat danny um if people want to find you and your work where do they go oh okay yeah so i've got a website dannymulhern.com uh, I think most things are there on my socials are, are sort of linked there and most of my work. Yeah, Spotify and all that stuff. Amazing. Um, and look out for, I mean, in March this year, you've got the first single coming out from Singing Through Others? Yeah, first single in March. The, the album comes out in June, but there's uh, singles coming out every other week from March. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And obviously, if, if anyone's listening to this in the future, then it's out already. So go check it out. <laughs> Um, amazing Dan thanks so much for taking the time to chat mate it's been an absolute pleasure um, good luck with everything and um, yeah hopefully I'll see you soon thanks Jim that's good Good to talk to you good to catch up thank you very much for listening if you've enjoyed this episode and given that you've listened this far I feel you might have then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe rate and review on your podcast platform of choice by subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larkmusic.com. Larkmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larkmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>